Hello, welcome back to the PJ Pod. In this episode, we'll be looking at what happened to the great promise of medical cannabis since its legalisation two years ago. Our reporter, Corinne Burns, has been investigating why so few NHS patients are currently prescribed medical cannabis, even though some people regard it as their only option to help with conditions that are resistant to conventional treatment. There are some signs that this may change in the future, but should you expect medical cannabis prescriptions to come through to your pharmacy anytime soon? We will come back to that question later. First, to understand the current situation, we have to rewind all the way back to June 2018. I've now come to the conclusion that it is time to review the scheduling of cannabis. Before I go into any detail... That was the then Home Secretary, Sajid Javid, standing up in Parliament, making history by announcing a review into the legalisation of cannabis for medical purposes in the UK. The move came after days of controversy. A little boy, Billy Caldwell, with serious epilepsy, was hospitalised with life-threatening seizures. This happened after his mother, Charlotte, had brought cannabis oil back from Canada to the UK to treat his condition but the cannabis oil was confiscated at London's Heathrow Airport. This story was splashed over the newspaper front pages and news bulletins, and with the life of a little boy in the balance, the Home Secretary ordered a review of drug laws. This review later led to the legalisation of cannabis for medical uses on the 1st of November 2018. I want to applaud the Home Secretary for finally recognising the therapeutic value of medical cannabis. We know there are about a million patients up and down this country who will be queuing up for these medicines. This gave hope to many patients with conditions including chronic pain and severe epilepsy who had not found relief using other medicines. But two years on, most pharmacists have never seen an NHS prescription for medical cannabis. So what happened? In this episode, we wanted to hear from people on all sides of this debate. We begin by speaking to Matt Hughes, a parent of a child with a rare form of epilepsy, who, so far, hasn't been able to get an NHS prescription for his son, Charlie, who you might be able to hear in the background. Charlie was, at his worst, was on four anti-epileptic medications and still having 120 seizures per day. He was literally just knocked out. There's no quality of life. So he's literally, if he's sleeping, he was then waking and then just seizing, which then just knock him out as well. So physically, there has a massive impact on his body. And then the side effects of the medications as well. So he was, um, you know, if he wasn't seizing, he just lay there and he's just completely out of it. It's almost like he was in his own little world. And then just, yeah, as we started to introduce cannabis, the first thing we saw wasn't seizure control, it was how alert he became. All of a sudden, he's, it was almost like he woke up and was like, wow, this is the world, and began starting to interact with certain toys and taking interest in people, laughing and gigging a lot more, babbling, and he then started saying mama and uh, dada, etc. So it's like someone had switched the button on and turned it back on. And then... As the, the dose increased, we then start, started seeing the reduction in seizures. So, whole plant oil has made a huge difference to Charlie's life. And just to be clear, this is the oil that contains the full spectrum of cannabis compounds, including THC. It's quite different to the CBD products that we now see quite commonly on the shelves of health food shops and pharmacies. 
However, clinical guidelines published by NICE a year ago, which looked at the use of medical cannabis in four areas, severe epilepsy, chronic pain, multiple sclerosis, and chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, don't recommend whole plant cannabis oil to treat Charlie's condition. And so Matt has sought a judicial review against the NICE guidelines. Out of all the available evidence for cannabis use, for not just for epilepsy, but in general, they narrowed it down to four randomized controlled trials, which were the trials for epidiolex. And they ignored all the anecdotal and open label studies, etc. Basically saying that it wasn't strong enough evidence. It's just a fundamental lack of understanding of cannabis as a plant. CBD or epidiolex is a pharmaceutical, it's a one uh, molecule medicine. What Charlie uses has up to 150 cannabinoids in there. It has terpenes and the flavonoids. So there's lots of active ingredients. You can't run that through the traditional route of pharmaceutical medications. It has to, you know, you have to be looking at other evidence. Now, if you look at evidence in Minnesota in America, it has up to 300,000 uh, references of cannabis that has been prescribed over there and used. And that evidence built together is a massive amount of evidence to show its safety and effectiveness. The same with Canada. They have up to, I think, something like 10 million uh, points of evidence. And none of this was being taken into account. And it's basically they were just looking around the world for randomized controlled trials. So effectively, yeah, our trial was to say, look, there is our evidence out there. Our children are evidence. So Charlie's not had any side effects whatsoever. And it's reduced his seizures. It's helped him. There's nothing else available that the NHS can offer him. So unless you're going to start going back to the beginning and just going through a tick box of all these different medications, and once they've been through them once, they then just go back to the beginning and start going round in circles. So yeah, we're saying that you know you need to be taking into consideration these children's needs, that how rare their syndromes are, to be able to prescribe them and, and take the data, etc. If you go online and look at the NICE guidelines, it does say that they took into account 11 observational trials for their recommendations on medical cannabis in epilepsy, and uh, 20 randomised control trials for the recommendations on chronic pain. But uh, as you can hear, some patients or their parents think that they should have cast their net wider. And there are experts that agree. Mike Barnes is a neurologist who has had an interest in medical cannabis for the past 20 years having had first-hand experience with his MS patients who had been using it for their muscle spasms, or spasticity as it's called. And I realised there must be something to uh, this new medicine if uh, people were criminalising themselves to get it, particularly severely disabled people were doing so. Mike helped get Satifex licensed with GW Pharma, which is a whole plant-based medicine used to treat painful muscle spasms. He also worked with the Home Office to get a license for Alfie Dingley, a young boy with a rare form of epilepsy. But he's convinced that there's much more to do. Personally, I don't prescribe anymore. I thought my time was better spent on um, media and consultancy work and such like. Uh, but I did help to set up um, um, medical cannabis clinics, which I think was the first cannabis clinic in the UK. That clinic alone is now prescribed for about 1,200 patients, all privately, of course, which is... Um, the only way you really get it at the moment. Across the UK, we think something approaching 2,500 people have now been prescribed medical cannabis privately and three on the National Health Service, all children with epilepsy. Just a 
tiny drop in the ocean of the people in the UK who would benefit. Whilst a lot of the stories about medical cannabis that reach the news tend to be about young children, Mike was careful to add that the patients he treats cover a range of ages. Uh, in fact, the average age was about 50. And, he says, most of his patients show clinical benefit. Two-thirds of the, of the diagnosis and the prescriptions are for pain, chronic pain, which of course comes with um, things like arthritis, sometimes cancer, sometimes nerve pain. Another 20% is for anxiety or related things like PTSD or fibromyalgia, which is with pain and anxiety, people for sleep problems. Um, and then, of course, the children, mainly children, some adults who are with epilepsy. Between 80-85% of people who get a prescription are helped by that prescription, which is remarkably good, considering that these are people who have, by definition, chronic long-term conditions that have not been helped by existing licensed medication. And side effects are usually very well tolerated. So far in the clinics, which is about 1,200 patients, we've had one person, just one, who had an unacceptable side effect, which is the very fast pulse rate. The condition was helped, but we had to reduce the dose because of the fast pulse rate. And that's it. Mike is chair of the Medical Cannabis Clinician Society, and he says that there are several major barriers to getting medical cannabis on the NHS. Well, sadly, it's, it's virtually impossible in NHS at the moment. Um, there's several reasons for that. Uh, first of all, there's a general reluctance amongst doctors in the NHS to prescribe it. Partly that is ignorance, because they don't know about cannabis, and quite rightly, they don't want to prescribe something they don't know much about, so they haven't been trained. That's a correctable problem, of course. Then we've had the very unhelpful guidelines from bodies such as NICE, who've really said that they don't think there's enough evidence to prescribe cannabis, except possibly for nausea and sickness and for spasticity. I find that an extraordinary statement because of the 50 countries around the world that now allow medical cannabis, uh, 48 allow for prescription for pain and the evidence for pain, in the words of the National Academies in America, uh, was conclusive. And our own chief medical officer felt the evidence for pain was conclusive. I think mainly they've interpreted it as a pharmaceutical product which it isn't, it's a botanical product, and have looked at the evidence of double-blind placebo-controlled studies, which are lacking. They're not totally absent, but they are lacking, um, because it's very difficult, if not impossible, to do those sort of pharmaceutical studies for a botanical product. The other problem is then, even if a doctor says, yes, I'm happy to prescribe it, they've got to get approval, because that's in the regulations, uh, from the hierarchy in their hospital, the hospital trust. And so you've got another layer of reluctance, if you like, and finally, if you do get past that point, and we're only aware of one case that's so far got past that point, other than the three that are being prescribed for, in that case, the funding body, the CCG, as it's called, the Clinical Commissioning Group, uh, said, no, it's too expensive, failing to note that actually the patient would have come off other expensive medication to go on cannabis, which is actually remarkably cheap. Um, so there's four hurdles to get past. Now, in the UK, there are currently two licensed cannabis-based medical products. That's Sativex for MS and Epidiolex for two forms of severe epilepsy. And they are approved by NICE, although they're not widely prescribed. But if a doctor in the UK wanted to prescribe unlicensed whole plant cannabis preparations, then the legal position is that specialist doctors have to ask the NHS Trust for permission to prescribe it as a special. 
We wanted to find out for ourselves how many doctors were applying for permission to prescribe these unlicensed medical cannabis treatments and what hurdles might be holding things up. So we requested information from 138 NHS hospital trusts under the Freedom of Information Act. And we discovered that in almost all cases, when a trust received a request, it was approved. But we also found that just one in 10 trusts said that they had received a request to fund unlicensed medical cannabis treatment from a specialist. So it's not that the NHS trusts are blocking requests for unlicensed medical cannabis when doctors think it's needed. It just seems that doctors aren't requesting it. In fact, just 18 NHS items for medical cannabis were prescribed in the whole of 2019. This reluctance likely stems from the NICE guidelines. We spoke with pharmacist Janine Barnes, who was on the NICE panel for the guidelines. They said they wanted a pharmacist, which actually is quite unusual, I find. So, you know, I thought it would be good to uh, get involved, really. We wanted to find out why NICE hadn't come to similar conclusions as those who advocate for wider use of medical cannabis. She said it was a difficult ask right from the off. Previous guidelines from start to finish had been over two years um, and we had sort of, well, just an awful lot more time really, whereas this was very, very rapid. And then the problem was many of the products we were looking at were unlicensed so we kind of knew from the start that there probably wouldn't be a great amount of evidence really and certainly obviously on these panels we have parents of children you know with the quite rare epilepsy syndromes and things and it, it brings home the real clinical need you know and they've actually seen benefits but they can't actually access the products. We wanted to know what literature they'd used during the review processes and how they made those decisions. You have whole meetings on that, pouring through, you know, the minutity of all the uh, different data. But I suppose the, you know, the absolute perfection would be uh, randomised, controlled or a Cochrane review. But of course, there was nothing like this for these sort of products. And I think from the start, we were aware that probably the biggest impact to these guidelines would be the research recommendations, really. Did you have any particular views about medicinal cannabis when you went into this committee? And did any of those views change by the time that you'd gone through the process? They did, actually, because in my sort of line of work, which is, you know, mainly Parkinson's disease, I had quite a lot of patients using cannabis, CBD oil, cannabis that you could get from health food shops and things often for tremor and, you know, anxiety and things like that. If you look at the component of CBD oil, it's about 50 times lower than the prescribed products. So my view really naively was it's probably some placebo effect, but if they find it helps, it's not going to harm. But really, on be having been on the committee, it became apparent because there were a lot of paediatricians, you know, all sorts of different disciplines that were working with children and they were saying how it affects the liver enzymes you know even at those tiny concentrations so that frightened me a bit really you know because it was something I hadn't been aware of so I think you know we have to respect the fact that really problems real problems can come and real side effects even from the dilute medications and I think probably the the you know most disappointing was like the the chronic pain one um, that really you know it, it just wasn't cost effective because that's the other thing with NICE they have whole 
public health departments who, you know, individually model the case and you know, look at the cost effectiveness of it all. So often, you know, things that might look like there was a glimmer of hope, but when you look at the costs and, and qualities, you know, life quality adjusted life years, they weren't reaching the cost effectiveness at all. It's obviously a very emotive topic with passionate voices on either side of the, the argument, if you can call it that here. Is that something that you felt or sensed while you were working on these guidelines? Yeah, very much. Um, I don't know if I should say, but there were like pickets outside, outside the nice offices. And, and it was very um, topical as well. It was on the news and, you know, people were following it very, very closely. Because I think... You know, in general, people were quite disappointed that we couldn't really come up with more positives. But, you know, without the evidence base, you just couldn't really. I was interested to hear what Mike Barnes thought about these conclusions of the potential negative side effects of medical cannabis. Well, any medicine, you've got to weigh up the benefits on one hand. Um, with the risks on the other and the risks of the side effects. We know a lot about side effects. We shouldn't forget that cannabis is around for thousands of years. It's used by about 64 million people in this planet every day. So, yes, we need to take into account the side effects, but not just the side effects that come out of double-blind placebo-controlled studies. Let's look at the side effect profile that's been known for tens and tens, if not hundreds of years. Um, And it is a remarkably safe medicine. Mike thought that NICE had taken the wrong approach to reviewing the evidence. Oh, there's a huge number. I mean, when I did my report in 2016, there were, in round terms, 20,000 uh, studies on a clinical basis, uh, clinical use of cannabis. There's now over 40,000. So in four years, those numbers have doubled. But mainly, they are observational studies, case studies, non-controlled groups. But NICE and others just dismiss all the other evidence there is, all the case studies, all the observational studies, I said they're not really worth the paper they're written on, so we'll just ignore all that and just look at the double-blind, placebo-controlled, and I think that's a fundamentally um, flawed philosophy, if you like. Um, and I would object to the fact that that disenfranchises, I suppose, is the right word for people to use cannabis now. Well, there's clearly a fundamental difference about how to interpret the evidence and what should and should not be included. So it feels like gridlock. Advocates say they need whole plant-based therapies, but NICE requires more randomised placebo-controlled trial evidence before they will make firm conclusions on the use of unlicensed medical cannabis. And it's unlikely that we'll see any new RCTs anytime soon, as drug companies have little incentive to spend money paying for trials of whole plant cannabis oil. But a recent development may hold some hope for patients who are holding out for an NHS prescription. Just last month, Billy Caldwell was granted a lifetime prescription on the NHS for whole plant cannabis oil medicinal cannabis prescription on the NHS in a landmark decision that could pave the way for thousands more patients to receive the treatment. Now, the situation is complicated here, as Billy has a shared care agreement between a private doctor and his GP, which means his prescription can legally be provided on the NHS. But a key thing in enabling this to happen was the consideration of Billy's case by a panel of paediatric neurology experts based at Great Ormond Street Hospital. 
Their advice gave health authorities in Northern Ireland enough confidence to give a lifetime prescription to Billy. So, there is some hope. One thing we know for sure is that parents like Matt are not going to give up. Uh, yeah, so Charlie's good. He's, uh, we're now sorting out his EHCP plan. He's going to be going to a specialist school. So we're now trying to select um, the right school for him. And, but yeah, generally he's, doing, he's getting really good reports at nursery. And he's just a really happy, chirpy little lad um, getting into mischief. So, you know, it's still stressful for us. We have concerns about his future, especially when he, you know, if he if he reaches 18, because um, his form of epilepsy can be life-limiting. But yeah, it's just worrying about his future, really. There's not really a huge amount of funding put towards um, epilepsy research. None of them are researching cannabis. Um, so it's, yeah, you know, we do worry about his future. But yeah, we try and take it each day as it comes, really, basically. So, Corin, is it true to say that for families like Matt, there is some hope with these new NHS panels that are being set up for conditions like epilepsy? Um, I think they're a good thing. Um, I think they do possibly mean that some more children with epilepsy will get access to NHS medical cannabis because it gives clinicians more confidence when they're making decisions. But it's very early days, and at the moment, as far as I'm aware, Billy Caldwell is the only child who's benefited from this. Um, We also know that there aren't, at the moment, plans for any similar panels looking at other conditions, so there's not much solace for people with, for example, chronic pain who say that they need medical cannabis. Is, Is there any new trial evidence that you can see that may come along soon that to change NICE's mind? Last year, the National Institute for Health Research, they put out calls for government-funded clinical trials into medical cannabis. Um, there weren't many applications for that, and none of the applications were accepted, but at the time, it was very shortly after cannabis had been rescheduled, so it, maybe the timing wasn't optimal. There's also this um, Project 2021, which we have reported on in the PJ previously, They are collecting observational data on patients who are receiving subsidised medical cannabis through a network of private clinics. They've got um, big ambitions. They're aiming to monitor around 20,000 patients. And this, they say, would create a huge body of observational evidence. So we might have you back on the pod sometime in the future covering this topic again. Um, I hope so, yes. Um, I hope we can report some more progress in the future. It's certainly something that the Pharmaceutical Journal is going to keep following. You've been listening to PJ Pod, brought to you by the Pharmaceutical Journal, the official journal of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. You can join the RPS for the equivalent of just 60 pence a day. Search RPS membership to find out more. This episode was presented by Nigel Prates and by me, Corinne Burns, and produced by Jeff Marsh. Thanks for listening and bye for now.